House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, today we're going to have a, an interesting guest sitting in with us here, and um, he's uh, recently written a book. I believe it came out in December of last year. And, um, of course, we always cover crime at least one day a week and kind of that that aspect. And mm-hmm. so he was a uh, Toronto police officer, and um, his book is called Just a Cop. And it's a memoir of my 30 years with the Toronto Police Service and as an ur- undercover agent. Hal Cunningham, thank you for sitting in with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so, interesting, interesting book and... Um, concept of, 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 of your life as a cop um, for so much of your life. Um, so what, let's start with what made you um, join the police? Like what, what, what was your desire to be part of the police force? Well, as a young child, and I didn't know why until just recently, I always said to everybody, I'm going to be a policeman when I grow up. And... Uh, when I finished high school, I took college courses regarding law and went straight into the police service at 19 years old under the cadet program and then became a constable at 21. And it was a desire I always had, but uh, as I relate it to in the book, I was lost when I was about five years old in Toronto visiting relatives. We lived 100 miles away, and I was found by a policeman and uh, returned to my parents in the big city. And I happened to work at that police station, oh, 10 years later, when I was 19 years old, in the big city of all the units in the city, 17 detachments or divisions, we call them. I started in that particular area where I was lost as a young child for an evening. And I just reflected on that recently, that that's probably what instilled in my mind this would be the thing I wanted to do as as an adult. So now, now, and, and this is a, a hard one. Uh, did it live up to the expectation? Exceeded it. I think I would have been totally bored in any other career. I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but I enjoyed the challenges of policing, uh, the risks of policing. It's a special breed, and I'm glad I fit the mold because I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it and the satisfaction that it gave me. It never let me down, especially working in a city with 5,000 other police officers, a city of uh, 22, 2,500,000, 2.5,000,000, 5,000,000 total in the whole area. Uh, it, it, it offered a lot of uh, challenges for me. Yeah, it's the big city in Canada. Um, yeah. I, I just, I, I, you know, so have you seen over the years, like you went... I guess from what, 73 to 2003, I, I guess there's, that's a ton of changes. Um, did you find it getting more violent as time goes by? Um, that's a perception sometimes is due to media, where we might not have had the sensationalism and the reporting <clears throat> on all crime uh, back in the early days. I remember we uh, had many police officers uh, shot at, killed in my earlier days than I think we did in my later days. Um, It was rough and tough on the streets. It was uh, 
us against them sometimes. And uh, later on, uh, our hands were getting tied <clears throat> more and more with restrictions and, and procedures, and it did change over the years. Hmm. So, so now what, what do you think your biggest surprise was um, about being a cop? Like what, what, what kind of did you get that you weren't expecting to get? Probably the camaraderie. I worked with the best group of people, all with the same goal of making a difference out there, liking to go into work every day and enjoy your, your, your duties, and, and making sure we all went home together. And that was uh, brotherhood between the people I worked with. And uh, that's something that, that, that we have to have because we're there for each other and, and that understanding in all kinds of situations. I just wonder now. We're getting too personal. How how hard is it? Um, like quite often you see on, you know, um, cop shows and movies and stuff like that. Um, quite often they make the um, personal life look really struggle. Like it becomes really hard because you're in such an involved job. Did you? Is that is that very realistic? Yes. A lot of policemen you'll find um, have relationships and marriages with nurses, and that's probably because we both have an understanding of the other side of society, uh, the ugliness of some things, and the coping of shift work. We both seem to have parallel worlds, and a lot of uh, a lot of them end up getting together to uh, lean on each other, to support each other. It is challenging. You can't bring home your problems. Uh, some people don't discuss it at home, uh, and that's not always a good thing. But sometimes it's the right thing to do is to uh, protect your family from the ugliness of what you've seen. And if you can deal with it yourself and compartmentalize it and, and handle it and cope, cope with it, you're a better person. So there is complexities. Nowadays, we're seeing a lot of PTSD, a lot of suicides, uh, and uh, it, it's very serious right now. Okay, Hal, I, I really enjoyed reading your book, um, and I haven't read it, it in, in completeness, but what I've read of it tells me that for the reader, you've tried to really lure the reader into your way of thinking and how you've experienced and grown in your role as a police officer. And it's a very easy read. And some books that, that um, professionals write, people struggle with because there's a lot of jargon, there's a lot of um, terminology that's associated to our particular professions. And within this book, it is, it's easy to read it, and you're talked through an experience. And that's through specific things that have happened to you and those people you've had interactions with um, throughout your career. And you've compartmentalized it in terms of your different roles. I think looking back at some of the things you've just said to Al, when you're talking about um, is public perception about crime waves and how different crime has come more to the fore. So for now, for example, terrorism and people's perception is that we're more at risk now than ever before. Mm -hmm. But actually what you're saying is, well, right back then I witnessed more, a bigger loss of colleagues and death than I have ever experienced in my later years. So it really goes to show how the public perception of 
um, society is so very different from the perception of those professionals working within it. And you've mentioned police and nurses, and that will extend to um, anybody in a, a political position, I suppose. So looking back across your career now and those sort of compartment, sorry, I, I can't even say the words this evening. So... So how you've, um, you've separated your book into those different compartments of your life, what was the most interesting role you've had and what provided the most learning for you as an individual about yourself? Okay. Um, I, as stated in the book, did my young years as a street cop. I was out in the cars 24-7 working with great partners encountering gun calls and homicides and every call you could imagine in the heart of downtown Toronto. Uh, but at 25 years old, I was now qualified for advancement in regards to a specialized unit, whether it be a drug squad, a morality, a vice, tactical unit, anything. I chose intelligence and specifically the branch of it uh, for surveillance. I had heard a bit about it, this secret unit, and I walked in one day, asked for an interview, and I was accepted. And at 25 years old, I was one of the youngest ever to be brought into the unit. I loved driving a car, and this is ace race car driving required, following people. It's high speed and uh, very challenging. And then as a team, you're following people for an uh, investigative unit. And we were a support service, the specialist, for units like homicide, hold up internal affairs, drug squad, morality, organized crime families. We would follow their suspects sometimes when they're directly involved in a crime or just for fact-finding information. And they never knew we were there. They never knew we were there 99% of the time because we were good. I found that challenging. I was an actor. I acted. I used props. And I watched people the day after they killed somebody because we would be put on the case to follow them. I watched bank robberies go down as they occurred, uh, drug deals uh, with an undercover police officer making a buy. I was right there beside them. They never knew it. And this wasn't just me. This was our team. Mm. So me, I, I fit the mold, and I never knew it until I did it, so much so that um, I ended up teaching it for 25 years, surveillance to investigators, off the job as a private business well before I retired and after I retired. So I had a great deal of satisfaction with that unit, uh, the surveillance part of it. And what was the biggest point of learning for yourself as an individual? Because in a profession, I'm a professional, and in our professions, we, we learn on the job all the time because of changes in society, learning, research, etc. What is it that you learned about you through that journey? I tried to be the best I could be personally. I saw challenges and I overcame them, and one in particular was giving evidence in court. As a young copper, it's just giving traffic tickets and giving evidence in court. And as time progresses, you've got to give evidence on your break and enter arrest, your robbery arrest. And that's very important to do it properly because the case doesn't end with the arrest. The case starts with the arrest for a good successful conclusion. So I studied evidence in the minor courts for years, so much so that when I became an undercover agent in intelligence and followed major, 
major investigations I was involved in, I was now giving evidence in front of a judge and a jury for days on end as the most uh, primary witness. Um, and I'll, actually, I was declared an expert witness by the courts in, in surveillance and counter-surveillance techniques. So I was able to give my opinion of what they were doing after I gave my direct observations. So I was able to excel and give the best evidence I could, and we had some very successful cases that uh, uh, Crown Attorney wrote a book about, a couple of my cases, and I was very, very pleased with the outcomes, and I, I felt I always did my part. So that's a, that's a part that's not seen by the public much, and everybody should sit in a courtroom because you'll learn something just watching what goes on there, and that, that's an education in itself. I never sat outside the court when I was not involved uh, waiting for my case or in between witnesses, I usually sat in the court and I was learning. I always remember Hal talking to my colleagues and saying, the worst thing, the most difficult sentence you will say in court is your name. Because that moment when you stand in the witness box and you have to talk through your name and your professional working address and then take the oath, that's the first time you hear your voice in that courtroom. And for some, it can be the moment of complete terror until they've done it a few times. That's why it's good that young officers are not taken immediately into specialized units. There's, yeah. a, there's a growing curve. And part of that to me and to many is giving that evidence on you going through a red light or a stop sign or speeding or you uh, uh, impaired uh, DUI uh, in, the, in your car and giving that evidence properly. So now you're ready to give evidence against somebody on a murder case or 30 mm -hmm. bank robberies like I was involved in or terrorist cases like I was involved in. It builds you up for that and you have to prepare yourself. You just can't walk into it. In fact, I saw something advertised the other day here in the UK about fast tracking to CID so you can um, go in and go straight into CID. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that because I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a, a definite need for life experience and a skill development before you go into those roles where um, it's more analysis-based. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, carry on, Hal. I was naive when I was 19 and first time in the big city. I grew up in the country 100 miles away. Everything was new to me. Mm. And, and for me to be involved... The best thing I learned in the first few years was working with an excellent police partner and the gift of the gab. And I watched them interview people on the street, just conversations. And the best, in, in, I now know, the best uh, interview technique is to be a good listener. And I listened to them ask pointed questions and then stop and let the person talk, listen and pause and wait and ask the right questions, and have the gift of the gab, I call it. And that was a learning experience that senior officers were able to unknowingly pass on to the younger recruits, and I, I took that like a sponge. When people read your book, they'll be taught through your journey with, um, and they'll really get a sense of feeling about your humor and how you use humor as a, um, a development of your own resilience, and also about your humility as a police officer and what you're actually trying to achieve. If I was to ask you, what, what, what was the learning on a case that didn't go so well 
to you, what would that have been that didn't quite make that to the book because that's not obviously what you would want to portray. But when we do things that don't go to plan, that's often where we learn the biggest lessons. So what was that for you? I'm stumped. You caught me here. I, I made mistakes. Probably in the younger years, I wasn't a good listener. I maybe shouldn't have been as forceful. I think there is a super cop phase that all young officers go through, and I think I was probably maybe a little heavy-handed in regards to my verbal interaction and with somebody, and and it's just life in the big city where there's a lot of anonymity of you dealing with these people. It's not the mayor's son. It's not a small town, and uh, they should listen to me because I'm telling them, and I'm not going to take a no for an answer or, or yeah. their resistance isn't going to happen because this is in the big city and I think I should have maybe been a little more compassionate in my younger years but that seems to be a phase that a lot of guys go through and and uh, it, it's hard when you're given all this new power and position um, to be a little humble in the early days I think that's a, um, a really nice story for you to have said how and I think that that's replicated in any position where there is a um, a power imbalance between you and the person you're working with and that shift from being a um, sort of a baby police officer a baby professional with a position of power saying I'm doing to you because I can and I think that's my role to developing into I actually understand my role is to walk alongside you and guide you and, and where things go wrong, I will take action. But first, I'm going to try this approach. And it's, it, it's, a, it's a very much an, a growing into that thinking, isn't it? It takes, it takes quite a few years, yes. And you just reminded me of the recruits that would ride with me in a police car. And when they see an offense, they call them all out because this is all new acquired knowledge to them. Mm, oh, his license yeah. plate isn't right. Or he just he made that turn and he didn't stop fully or this or that something you probably wouldn't be ticketing everybody for each each and every one of those but they see them they comment on them and they're chomping at the bit person you know, to, to apply their newly acquired knowledge just a little bit of reins to be pulled back a bit you know by the yeah. senior officer and, and tell them yes yes you're right but we don't do that can you think of a case that um where you've had the biggest impact on an individual I'm sorry, what impact? The biggest impact for an individual. Well, I did relate in my book to a couple of um, notifications of family, of mm -hmm. deaths of family members, and that's traumatic. And um, I had just lost my father around that time through a long illness, and I had compassion for them. And strangely enough, I came out of those places feeling good, that I did it the best way I could and comforted them. And I knew I did one, as I said in my book, months later sent me a thank you letter. And I just, I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, it was awful what had happened. And uh, that, that, that was unexpected, unexpected. So I, there's satisfaction in doing your job well, even if it's the worst thing you have to do. Mm. And that impacted me totally. And in terms of, um interaction with with people what was the easiest type of people to work with or the type of crime the easiest yeah 
I'm sorry, the easiest people to work with? Or, or the type of crime. So, so either or, really. So um, whether those people, so that one of the more difficult um, individuals to work with would be one that maybe is under the influence of a drug or a substance oh, because yes. of the lack of clarity, etc. Or it could be somebody who's very good with disguised compliance. So you think they're doing everything they should be doing, but actually that's a, a, it's a mask for something more undercover. No, it was uh, undercover. They never knew who I was. And, and, I, and I rarely interacted closely with my subjects because I didn't want them to recognize me from seeing me several times over several days because mm. I was there. It's a different role, um, watching and following and note-taking and that. I think the difficult challenges were mostly people that are under the influence of usually alcohol, but it's also emotionally displaced people or, or, or drug influence, where you have to do verbal interaction and try the best you can to reason with them and understand it, but you're not going to get hurt either or put yourself in a very, very dangerous situation, and it's a... It's a hard balance to um, achieve the result of getting them to a place of safety because they're a danger to themselves or others, and you are protected and your partner and your colleagues are protected from them. Um, and that's the situation you're seeing now on these uh, cameras on the street all the time, the telephones or phones mm. are recording, rather. And you're seeing these interactions that we've been doing all this time, and you're, hopefully you're seeing the whole situation, not just the final conclusion of it, what led up to it is very important. It's very challenging. There's a lot of patients usually involved in them and take time, and it's not just a 20-second uh, video. It's probably been going on for a while, and it's hard to resolve those situations where the person isn't complying. And we, we always go into situations with, um, we have our own unique set of values and prejudices, which we have to recognize in order to be able to manage them. What was the most difficult um, prejudices you may have had or had to overcome in order to fulfill your role as a police officer? The most difficult, uh, what was it? Prejudices. So um, prejudices, I just, uh, I'm sorry. yeah, Thank because you. we all have them. I mean, it's, it's, everybody yeah. has prejudices and it's about us recognizing them, understanding them and then being able to adapt them to our role. Yeah. So how, how did you do that? How did you find that? Again, being what I called a country boy, <laughs> this was all new to me. I had had people of color in my high school, uh, people of, of uh, Asian descent in my high school, um, people of the Jewish religion in my high school, uh, where I came from, and other many other things, and and gay, homosexual, lesbian people in my high school that I knew of. So all those things were something new to me that I had to have the learning curve from the start uh, when I arrived downtown, and that's in the middle of our gay community, and dealing with those people. And I actually lived in that area, too, for many, many, many years. I wrote about it in the book also, that uh, I had to, and transgender people, oh my goodness, in that area, there's a prostitution track and there's a transsexual track of uh, prostitution in our area downtown. So I had to uh, learn about them all and understand them and not be, they're not an adversary of mine. Um, I talked to them <laughs> in a uniform position. Uh, there's lots to learn by speaking to these people and listening to them. So it was all a challenge. I did not work in a housing project area um, in parts of our city where there's uh, 
uh, colored people, uh, new Canadians, communities, um, and that, and sometimes the crime is challenging in those areas. I didn't have a large involvement in those particular housing project areas. They're out, they're not in the downtown core per se. They're out in the uh, edges, and that. So um, that's very challenging for the officers trying to be fair to everybody and and keep the community safe who are asking for the police to help them and keep them safe. So I didn't have quite those challenges that they have in those areas. Did you, through your career, ever have an opportunity to work with um, sort of high-profile sex offenders, or is it an area that you steered clear from deliberately? Or No, I didn't specialize in a unit that dealt with that. Um, I, as a detective for years, had some cases regarding some sexual assaults investigations and that. My partner was a trained sexual assault investigator, so we would get some cases like that because of him, uh, because you required specialized training to take on some of those cases, and I didn't have yeah. it at the time, and he did. So I didn't specifically get involved in that type of crime investigations, no. Okay, and, and if there was a message that people were to hear from your journey as a police officer that you've recounted in your books, if they go away tomorrow and they grab the book, what message do you want them to hear? I want them to... I want to share our story, and I want them to share my eye. And I had many ride-alongs with me over the years when I was a uniform supervisor, a sergeant, and later on a platoon commander, a staff sergeant, I still went onto the road with my officers on all three shifts and uh, answered calls with them. And I took people on ride-alongs, friends, family, citizens, reporters, dispatchers, uh, quite a multitude of people, authors. And I, at the end of the eight or ten-hour shift, they couldn't believe what they had experienced. They said they always drove through that community or knew that area, but they didn't know that area until... I had shared what our eye was seeing, and it's a ride-along experience. And that's the way I've made the book, that whether I'm undercover, following bank robbers, terrorists, murderers, I'm telling you what I saw from my eye while I'm following them, and I'm sharing it with you as I am with the gun calls I was on in uniform, the snipers on the roofs, the murder scenes I was at. I'm sharing my eye so that at the end of the day, that police car over there across the street, you have an idea of what he's doing when he's not sitting there writing up that report in that car, that he's done any of these calls I have done over the years and shared with the reader as a ride-along experience. And you talk quite heavily um, at the beginning of the interview about the camaraderie that you experience within the, the police force. And um, how have you sort of plugged that gap since you've been out? Because it's... it's Quite often, isn't it, that people who are in the military or people who are in um, a profession whereby you have to rely, your, your life will depend on the person next to you. How do you replicate that when you, when you leave? And that's a hard part. There's no longer the close ties. We have reunions. Um, I went to a reunion for a surveillance unit a couple of years ago, and it was a 50-year reunion for the last 50 years of officers who worked in that surveillance unit. Last week there was a reunion in Clearwater, Florida. I'm at my Florida home now for the winter. 
and it was Toronto police officers retired to have a reunion there every year. Um, we have coffee and breakfast clubs all around our area in Ontario where we get together once a week, once a month. I hold one in my area once a year, and we get together. Whether you're a civilian or a dispatcher with the police uh, or a police officer or a parking enforcement officer, you're all retired members of our family. We get together. You're all welcome. So we keep those ties. We have a couple fr private uh, Facebook groups that we are on daily sharing information uh, of interest to us all and communicating with each other. And we've got people that live, I have a buddy in Cuba, a buddy in Vietnam, a buddy in Australia, a buddy in England, and across the country and, and all over the states, Arizona, Texas, Florida, and we're communicating there on that system. So that's, that's really helped a lot. When, when you talk about that, um, the, you know, being with the other cops and the and the, the family bond you sort of get, do you feel distant from regular people in society then, from being a cop? Like, do you feel like there's a sort of a little distance between cops and common people? I would agree, Al, that while I was on the job, that was the case. You tend to socialize just with police because they understand what you're going through. They're on shift work like you are. They're off in the middle of the week like you are or working weekends and holidays. Um, so we have a tighter family while you're working on the job. After you retire, I've got friends and none of them are policemen. I play poker three nights a week. And I play with a bunch of guys, they're a great bunch of guys, and they're all from different uh, professions, from doctors and lawyers to own car dealerships and hardware stores and everything. And uh, I socialize with everybody. So I don't have that family anymore, nor do I need it anymore, and it's not close in there for me. So you yeah. have to adapt. And we have, I have quite a big circle of friends now. Yeah. Well, you're not gambling for real money, are you? You know that's illegal. <laughs> No, we just play for fun. It's, it's bridge. I didn't say poker. Sorry. No, I, well, I just, you know, why I, the last question and even this now, I'm sort of thinking that, because um, I know a lot of cops, and I think that um, you're dealing with kind of a, a lot of the um, ugliness or negativity in people, the things that they're, you know, you're dealing with a lot of people doing bad things. And I just wonder if that carries through so that after so many years of doing that, you just look for the bad things in people? You've seen a lot. Yeah. And you're exposed to a lot. Um, but you've also seen the good in people. And I don't think you could have survived 30 years on the career as, as a policeman if you didn't weigh it properly uh, and adapt to it and understand that they're not all bad out there. You're there to help them do what you can um, and serve the, serve the community, honestly. And that, that's what you're there for. And they're not all bad. Uh, you see some ugliness that others should never see. The, the, the average citizen doesn't have to see what we see. Uh, one thing I thought about my book was I talked about my career, and I probably said 90% of the things of the interesting stories that I did, good, bad, sad, whatever. But I didn't say, and I could in a paragraph say, 
I didn't relate to the young child that was run over by the truck, and I was there. Or the couple that died in the car accident, and the wires fell on them as the car's on fire, and they died in the car. Um, I didn't talk about a uh, guy that blew his head off, and I'm standing around, look down, there's pieces of his brain and a skull around my feet, 50 feet away. I didn't get into the gross, disgusting things that I've had to cope with. To me, it wasn't a story worth relating. It's just sensationalism, and I dealt with it. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. It didn't. It didn't affect me. I, I have nightmares to this day. I don't call them nightmares. I have confrontational dreams. My wife still kicks me because I'm thrashing sometimes. Um, that's been going on forever, and that'll never end. Where there's me versus them, that's usually police related. I don't understand why, but I didn't have PTSD. I survived the job. I didn't need the help. I could have, but I didn't. And I was able to weigh things properly and balance them. So I'm just very lucky. That's all that there is to it. Most most guys are lucky. Nowadays, we're losing more than before to PTSD and suicide, and that's scary. And I'm, I'm you ask what I'm doing. In the last four months, I've generated almost $10,000 in donations. It's going to go to a first responders PTSD help line a help group and I'm, I'm ready to send the funds to them this summer that I've collected from veteran police officers like myself to donate to this cause that's, that's helping the guys and the girls Hal do you think there's a an increasing identification of PTSD um, due to our understanding about how we become desensitized and how there's that reinforcement of the need not to be desensitized to a situation I don't understand why there's more of it now than before. We've seen our military people come back from Afghanistan, and we've lost more to suicide than we lost in the battles. Uh, police officers, it's probably the same thing. It's pretty high. And I don't know why the coping skills are kicking in and they need help. I don't know why they're suffering. Um, it, is it, is it, and we're having an inquiry next year, or this year on last year's suicides, rather, uh, in Ontario by the government because there are so many officers. And they're going to ask, is it uh, the institution? Is it the higher-ups not giving them the help they need or mm -hmm. the stigma that they're asking for help and, and affecting their careers? Um, so there has to be some hard questions asked and some hard answers found to decide why today it's more than it's ever been and why are the people not handling it better are we were tougher back then when i was around i don't think so i just know that we didn't have this much it's an interesting point isn't it um and certainly when we see um each year remembrance day here and and thinking about those that have been through the war and and i i don't there's never a story about any of those individuals then having treatment or support for PTSD. And I wonder what that, that shifts about. And as you rightly said, it's not about strengthening people. There must be something more than that. When, when uh, we're working with trauma and we're dealing with life events and life and death situations, over time, we, we, have, we have processes we have to follow in that moment. So when something happens bad in a profession like the police, there are processes that have to be followed, and it's very easy to become desensitized to actually what's happening around you. How did you prevent that from happening? 
been around. I just want to backtrack one step. In World yep. War One, we called PTSD shell shock. Yeah, yeah. You're it's absolutely right. You know, so it's just a different name. What's PC now, politically correct name to use for probably what was very similar to what's happening now. Yes, yeah. Um, so I, it's nothing new, but there seems to be more of it, in my opinion. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a very serious matter, very serious matter. Or maybe it's just more acceptable to be able to talk about it now. Perhaps I said in my book, I went around a corner and I cried at a, at a Sid's infant death. Yes. And it yeah. hit me and hit my officer, and then I went back to work. Uh, another thing, I remember going home from work, and the car beside me was the guy that worked inside with me. We're heading home after midnight on the highway, and there was an accident in front of us, and a guy was decapitated. We both got out, secured the scene, called the police, waited till they came, told them what they had, and they let us go home. And I asked the, the officer the next night, we're back into work. I said, Ian, can I ask you a question? I said, when you went home after that accident, how'd you sleep? I said, oh, no problem. Mm. I said, me, me too. I said, are we okay? And we were. It's just how we're able to handle it, and it didn't affect us negatively we just moved on like you always do from one bad situation to the next situation whether it's good or bad and that was my indicator that he and i had been around a while and that was just another thing we had seen on the pile of things we'd seen but it didn't keep us awake at night or traumatize us in in the way that it has with some others yeah unfortunately Now, I wonder, um, do you find that there's, uh, now that you're down in the States as compared to Canada, do you find there's a different attitude toward uh, police um, in America than there is in Canada? I think so. I, I, policing in Canada and the United States, I've always compared because I've been coming down here forever. <clears throat> we, first of all, are paid a lot more money than they pay the American policemen. A lot of these people here have to work part-time on the side other jobs i found to help help supplement their family's income so we've always made more money it seemed to be more of a profession up there most of our guys are making over a hundred thousand dollars after they've been on a couple of years now and it, and the wages are all on the government uh, website of what they make and it, it's it's respectable it's your profession uh down here the people it's a mobile community of cars I see the police down here. I don't see the community of them out on the beat like we used to do and walking uh, around and interacting with the public. Usually it's a negative react interaction because you got stopped in your car. Well, that's not a great way to meet Mr. Policeman and learn about him and, and what he does. He's giving you a ticket or giving you a warning. So there's not a lot of interaction with him. I know they have community involvement down here. I've read it. But that's not the average citizen. The average citizen sees them doing radar or stopping cars from their police car, and not much more that I've seen in it regarding interacting with the police. Um, uh, maybe I'm missing something, but that's that seems to be a more of a mobile society. Hmm. I find because I, I go between Seattle and Kelowna, so I'm I'm between the both all the time. I find it, when I'm in Canada, I barely see police, and I feel less policed. 
maybe under-policed. <laughs> and when I feel like I'm in Seattle, I feel it's over-policed. Yes. You know, like I, I feel a tension. Um, I, 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 and to tell you the truth, I mean, it's only RCMP, not Toronto Police Force, that I've seen, um, or OPP. But it seems like um, they're, they're very approachable, and it, it, you can easily talk to a, a cop in Canada. Um, in the States, there seems to be a bit of a distance. I agree. When I was in Toronto, and I always worked in the downtown areas in the core, and they would go 24-7, tourists galore till 3, 4 in the morning, and then people are getting up going to work. It was always something going on. The two things that American tourists would say to me as a policeman quite often when I'm downtown, they'd walk up to me or my car, and they'd say, um, boy, your city is it ever clean. And the other thing was, I feel so safe here. We can walk around here all night, all evening, and we're safe. And I said, you are. You are safe. Mind you, I can show you three spots if you go dealing drugs, at buying drugs at, uh, at four in the morning in a housing project area in the fringes of the city. I would say that's just bad advice. Hmm. But downtown here, um, no, you, you are safe and secure as far as I'm concerned, and, that, and enjoy it, and that's what people do. So it is a safe city, a safe community, for people, and, and they were, they approached me to tell me those things because for some reason we were approachable. And that's why the guy in the beat is the easiest guy to walk up to and talk to. So if you don't have that area where there's a guy on the beat in the downtown core, uh, I think people feel safe when they see a policeman, two policemen walking down the street in the downtown or standing on the corner or seeing a couple cars sitting around watching people go by. I think they feel safer because they're there. Yeah, yeah, that's much more approachable in person than in a car. I, yes. You know, and I see there's a lot of shows like uh, Live PD and things like that on, and um, I don't know if it's really helpful or not for, for police. I'm not sure what you think about stuff like that. Um, I'm all for it. Honestly, I thought Cops was the best thing to happen for television. Right. Uh, I couldn't believe people would sometimes say to me, is that real cops? And I go, it, darn right it is. That's what happens. You don't know what to expect. As you approach that car, you just pulled over. You don't know what they're going to say. You don't know what they're, they're doing, and you have to deal with it. And there's the camera over the shoulder showing that. I think Cops was the first reality television show ever. And now live TV has taken it a step further where it's just action plus with multiple cameras and multiple calls and and analyzed by their panel of two or three to tell you what you're seeing, to help you explain what the officer was doing or the procedure and that. And I think it's great. I think it's, I think it's an education. Yeah, it certainly is. Certainly they get to see um, uh, more what really goes on, especially if you don't, don't have any run-ins with police and stuff. So, I mean, that's, that's probably a, a, a good thing. Um, so now you retired. What do you plan on doing? Well, my book was my project. Um, there was a couple of years um, where I was relaying my stories on my private Facebook group of retired officers, and they were accepting them and saying, you should write a book, you should write a book. So I compiled them together. Uh, we all have stories, but not many of us have written them down. And I didn't until my memory. One fellow said, how did you remember all that? 
I didn't have one note. It was all just, it's on my mind. And maybe it's a release to put it on paper. But I was able to put it on paper and re relay it to them. 90% uh, of the books that are written never get published. I was fortunate enough to find R.J. Parker Publishing, who publishes crime novels, uh, fiction and nonfiction books. He's written many himself. He accepted my book and could see that I had something to say that should be passed on to others. So that was my project. I've been very fortunate. It's doing extremely well in Amazon in the United States and Amazon in Canada. Uh, so my, my peers are giving me praise, which I am not doing it for that. I just realize they've read it and they're telling me they really enjoyed it because they feel part of it. That's their story too. And uh, I appreciate that. To me, that's the success. It's not money. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get rich doing this. Not at all. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, people will never believe that. So, no. no. <laughs> so poker is my other passion. I'm a Canadian Poker Tour champion. At one tournament, I played in my first place and won a really nice pot. And, uh, and I play a lot of poker, and that keeps my mind very active because it's all math. And I enjoy doing that. That's my passion. And I've spent six months south, six months in the north, and I have summer all year round. And I'm very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Well, um, I, I tell you, it's been a great conversation, and we appreciate it. Um, do you have contact information that you want to uh, give out to listeners? or? Um, well, they can email me if they have any questions. I don't mind that. Uh, my email is my name. It's Hal, H-A-L, last name Cunningham, C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M, the number one, at gmail.com. And uh, I'm anybody, I, I don't mind sharing. I taught for 25 years my surveillance techniques in front of classrooms and field exercises. I don't mind speaking in the public and sharing what I, I, I have to pass on. And uh, if they have any questions about policing, about the book, or a good poker hand, they're welcome to ask me about it. I'll give them my opinion. <laughs> well, and we're going to have your book on our website as well, so listeners or people listening from the website or any of the stations can just do a one-click and pick up the book. It's been, it's been And the reviews have been very good. If they want to read the reviews first, excellent reviews from people I don't know who a lot of them are that have read it. And it gives you an idea of what they got out of the book, whether they're the police community or from the public community, uh, what, what they've achieved reading it. And it's been very positive, and I'm very appreciative of that. Well, that's great. Well, again, thank you very much. Our guest has been Hal Cunningham, and his book is Just a Cop. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.